Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Online Eaton. It's likely that most listeners know something of the life of Sylvia Plath, a stunningly talented American poet who committed suicide in the brutally cold London winter of 1963. But have you read her novel? The Bell Jar, published in the UK that year, wouldn't be released in the US until 1971, and it is the events that inspired this semi-autobiographical account that lay at the heart of Elizabeth Winder's new book, entitled Pain Party's Work, Sylvia Plath in New York, Summer of 1953. Hi Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could just thank kick you. things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, okay, sure. I guess I guess the most important thing about myself is that I am really a, a poet. I mean, that's what I was trained trained to be. Um, I have an MFA in it's a, it's a creative writing MFA, and um, it's with a poetry concentration. And um, you know, when I was uh, in college, I pretty much exclusively wrote wrote poetry, and then I, you know, of course, I had to write some. Uh, you know, English papers, but those were always done really badly. So, <laughs> I've um, I've always, I've always been been a poet, and I've um, I've never really until I wrote this book, I've never really tried anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I, for years, I had been probably since you know 2005 or earlier. <laughs> I've um, I've been I love to read nonfiction, especially biographies of women. Um, so you know, obviously. I, I think it's a natural thing to kind of to gradually begin to write what you read. I think. Right. Do you remember when you first encountered Sylvia Plath in your own life? I do. Yeah, I was um, I was fourteen and I was in high school, and a friend of mine was reading a copy of The Bell Jar, and it was this old seventies um, cover of this this very like sort of Gothic-looking rows with sort of sharp edges um, hanging upside down, and there's this like big black lettering. And um, he read me, he read me the book because I was really curious about it, and I had heard the name Sylvia Plath before, and I didn't really, you know, know who she was. And 
And I remember reading the book, and I remember that it um, smelled so deeply of, of, of cigarettes. It, because <laughs> my mother smoked, and I thought that was really glamorous. So I never <laughs> um, like owned an object that reeked of cigarettes before. So I thought that was pretty cool. And um, then I, and of course I just, and I just fell in love with the language. And I remember um, specifically, it was just really becoming obsessed with the character Doreen because well, I thought her name was, was fantastic. You know, it was this like 50s name. And um, I just thought that she was the most glamorous person on earth. And I, and I loved how irreverent she was. And I loved that she always knew how much to like tip the bellhop and, and all this stuff. So, so I became really attached to the book, and I also just thought the book was so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly in the descriptions of the um, Esther's boyfriend, the Buddy Willard character. Um, you know, when he's like um, that awful scene where like, he 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 takes off his underwear, and um, of course, like Sylvia Plath is like describing the underwear it's, like it's like meshed like fish net or something, and he drapes it really neatly across the back of the chair, and it's just like so awful and it's just funny, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it just it seems very real to me, and uh, you know, so then so then very quickly I um, I uh, asked for it was like for Christmas or my birthday or something. I, um, to more Sylvia Plath, and I and I got a um, her collected poems, and it's a it's a very I still have it. It's a very attractive book. I think I just I love the way it looks. Mm-hmm. And, um, so then I just like fell very deeply in love with the way she uses language and the, the vividness of it, and it really and I, you know I was so young. I was you know uh, fourteen or fifteen. I I had known for a long time I wanted to be a writer and that I wanted to be a poet. So. Um, and I really think that her sense of language and her attention, this like exquisite attention to detail and syllables, is kind of it was it was important for me when I when I formed my idea of what writing is and what I wanted to do with it. And Sylvia Plath had a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So, so is this the first time you've really written about her? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and what drew you to this particular, because this is a partial life biography. It just focuses on the time in New York. What drew you to right. that particular time in her life, and why did you decide to do a partial life rather than a full life? Well, I've, um, you know, obviously I never I, I never thought the, that I'd write nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, kind of, I think for years it's sort of been hoping that I would. Um, but I, I like to focus, no matter what I'm writing, I like to focus on on, um, you know, a small thing, like an image, a detail, a certain amount of time. Um, I like, I like details. I like physical, um, I like physical, like, sensual details that are, that I think are almost like cinematic in a way. And I mm-hmm. think that that's, um, when you, when you're looking at the broad scope of a life, anyone's life, it's, it's difficult to do, to, to really focus on those small, relatable things. So I, I wanted to, I, so I've always been drawn to, like, I tend to narrow rather than broaden out my focus, I guess. Um, but regarding Sylvia Plath, I've, you know, I've, I've read probably almost every biography written about her, and there's so many, and, um, you know, some of them I, I really like, and they're quite good. But I've, I've always thought it was odd that, no, none of her biographies really seem to she seem to kind of gloss over this this summer in her life, mm-hmm. and only and sort of like race race through it, like impatient to get to the the you know the wild disaster at the end where she attempts attempt suicide. Um, and I think that it's it's so much more than that. It was so much more than that. It was just 
really, you know, she was 20 years old. It was this really crucial period of her life. Like, it's not, well, not even a period, it's a matter of weeks, but I think it, um, it's a really interesting kind of look at it. No one else is doing it. And, and plus, you have this um, wonderful, I mean, she was, this is like the first time in her life that she was taken out of New England. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and this is and this is someone who's used to like wealthy and Smith, and now she's in New York, and it's something completely different and um, and new for her. And I think that's interesting too. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, what sources were most helpful? You were able to interview the women, the other interns, <laughs> correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. That, that's like a huge. That was a huge source in my book. I don't know what I would have done without them. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else that was helpful that you were able to get access to? Or um, I know yeah. the diaries, yeah. obviously. Mm-hmm. Right. And those have been, you know, those have been published. Mm-hmm. You, know, um, you know what? They weren't, Sylvia's journals weren't a huge source for me. I mean, she really didn't write about this at all, this right. period. Um, which is, which I think is really wild in itself and says something because mm-hmm. she was such a journal keeper, you know, no matter how busy she was um, for her whole life. So, I, I thought that I that, that intrigued me, you know, that fact intrigued me. Um, so in terms of other sources, I went to the uh, class archives in um, the Lilly Library. It's the library that, um, uh, the school at the University of Indiana in Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And um, so they, they, have, they have a ton of, in fact, I think that most of the Sylvia Platt's archives are there. In fact, not even at Smith, although there's some at Smith, but the, it, that was just, that was, I love research, and it's like, by far, the, the fun, that's, I mean, research is the fun part mm-hmm. for me. So, I went there twice, actually, and I, and I, to the Lily Library, and I just loved every minute of it, and they have so, oh my god, they have so many things. At first <laughs> I thought, oh, you know, I, I'm going to be looking at everything, and that was, I mean, that was never going to happen when yeah. I, I saw that. Um, so, Oh gosh, yeah. I, that was that was a, that was a real high point for me. I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a cough. But um, yeah. So I so in terms of what was there, there was this really big folder on all of the Mademoiselle related stuff, mm-hmm. like all of the documents and the and the handouts they gave her, the schedule, um, the the things that she wrote to apply as a guest editor were all there. And so there was a lot there, and that was kind of step one, was piecing together the framework of the month. And um, then, of course, I looked at I looked at other things in the archives. Like um, she was a probably like a, a lot of sort of um, you know educated bookish types of her age. She was a really big letter writer, mm-hmm. and um, you know she wrote a lot of letters. But she always had tons of. I mean, most of her letters were either to her mother or to um, different guys that she happened to be dating. So, um, <laughs> um, but she was very, uh, she was a great letter writer and very, um, you know, had this, had this very breezy sort of tone that made you feel like you were just kind of talking on the phone. And, um, and she was very candid in her letters. So I, I, I read as many letters as I could from the, oh, what year am I thinking about now? Uh, 19, if it was anywhere in 1952, 1953, mm-hmm. 1954, maybe even 1951, I was I was reading it, and that was those were just amazing. Um, and I also and oh I forgot about this. In the archives, there are also letters that were sent to her from 
from um, mainly from 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 different boyfriends, and some of those were just so funny, mm-hmm. so funny, and I just I just loved it. Um, there was in particular just a guy that she he was sort of like a pen pal, but there were a few failed attempts at a romance, you know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the letters from him were particularly great because. Um, I could just picture this type of guy. I, I looked at a picture of him, and he was, you know, he had this leather bomber jacket for aviator sunglasses, and he was from Chicago, and I think he, he's sort of like, you know, um, posing as this kind of like Jack Kerouac type guy, and um, he's, you know, writing, and he was, he was clearly like a very, very smart guy, and I could, you could you could really see why they were friends and why they were so corresponding. Um, but towards the, the end of the letters began to take on his letters to her took on this very bitter sort of tone after there was an incident where, you know, they went out on a date and it didn't go so well. Um, and it was just his, um, his it, it was just amazing, you know, because he was mm-hmm. talking about, oh, he's, you know, he's engaged now. And I talked about this in my book, this girl, Sue, that he's going to marry and he's telling Sylvia, it's very obvious he's trying to make her jealous. And, <laughs> You know, and it and it's like kind of horrifying the way he talks about his current girlfriend. Like he's saying how you know her spelling is really good, but she's not creative. It's just like you know she's she's not too pretty, but she's pretty enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just really really terrible. Um, so it's just so funny, and so I love I love doing it. I love going through all of those documents. I and you know what I read um her Sylvia's journals from when she was, you know, a teenager and, and younger, mm-hmm. those aren't published. And I, I loved looking at those because um, you really saw her personality. Right. So so all of that was, was just so fantastic for me. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, so yeah. she came to New York to do an internship at Mademoiselle. Um, who did she work yeah. for? And what was the daily routine of that like? Oh, um, well, she worked for... All of the all of the um, guest editors, as they they called it, interns, were sort of assigned as Mademoiselle editor. They were just kind of like um, a shadow, and that woman would sort of be her boss. So Sylvia's boss was the managing editor, and her name was Sarah Lee Abel. And um, I think that for you know from from what I understand, and from from every single woman that I that I talked to who was a part of that month, they all basically said the same thing, which was that Sylvia worked so much harder than everyone else. Not because she wanted to, but because her her job was different. Um, and I, I go into to, to this detail in my book. They, the editors, it seems like the editors were kind of divided between um, what they were called the literary ones and the visual ones. The visual ones were um, would be more, they, they would have jobs that had more to do with, um, you know, fashion and beauty and things like that, whereas Sylvia's work was really um, kind of putting the magazine together. Mm-hmm. And she did have some, uh, the, the high points of her work would have been, you know, communicating with different writers because Sarah Abel was a very literary woman. And, you know, she was a, um, she was, she was the type of uh, Dylan Thomas, you know, mm-hmm. which was why there was just like, a, you know, this, the Dylan Thomas after it was that month. And um, so Sylvia would be on the phone and communicating with different people, and I and you know you could tell that she really liked that from her letters home. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of you know, copy editing and things like that, and just being stuck to the desk. And the other girls would, as part of their work, they would go to fashion shows and things like that. And you know Sylvia didn't always get to do that stuff. 
So I think that the work was kind of hard on her. And there was also quite a bit of technical technical things that she had to do. And, um, you know, she wasn't expecting that. And as someone who's also, you know, like, I mean, I would, I would, I would be so upset if I <laughs> had to do something like that. And I was thinking that I was going to be part of this really creative, glamorous sort of thing. Right. So um, I think the work was hard on her and she wasn't always suited to it. Mm-hmm. And it does sound like she was, since she was kind of separated out from the other girls um, on she her was. own. Yeah. Did she become yeah. close with any of them? She did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She um, she became closest to uh, uh, a woman named Carol LeVarne, who is um, who sort of provided Sylvia with a basis for the Doreen character, except that you know I spoke with Carol and um, she was it's she wasn't. Uh, that much like Doreen at all, at least, mm-hmm. you know, on the surface. But anyway, so um, they became very, very good friends, and they had a lot of fun adventures together, and she was also quite close with Neva, who's a big presence in my book. I, mm-hmm. you know, interviewed her, and um, she had kept all this stuff and all these letters. And, she, and Sylvia was also friends with uh, Janet Wagner, who kind of provided the inspiration behind the Belgian character, Betsy, who they call the um, Pollyanna Cowgirl. And, um, she was from Tennessee and, you know, very, very, very naive, very, very friendly. Um, immediately got her, like, long hair, long braids cut off into this very pretty um, bob haircut. And she ended up staying in New York to be a model because she was approached by a model style from Ford Models. So, um... Those would have been the, the women that Sylvia was the closest to, but it sounds like she was pretty friendly with almost everyone. Mm-hmm. So I think in the cultural imagination, Plath kind of exists as this is more the poet of the early 60s. That's how we think of her, and we don't really see her as being really glamorous, or it seems kind of like a disconnect that she would love fashion, but she did. Um, and that's a, a subject that plays a substantial role in your book. So what was her relationship with fashion and with makeup? Well, she just, um, she loves it. She loves all of it. You know, she was someone who is, and I think that this isn't, this wouldn't come as a surprise if, um, it didn't come as a surprise. You know, as someone who's read, you know, her poetry and, right. and her journals, She's what I would call very like physical poet. She's very tied to the physical world. You know, um, she's not talking. You know, there are ideas, but it's it's always rooted in in an object and a thing that you can touch, and you know, very textural. So, so um, you know, she's someone who who is really tied to the physical, and he's a very visual person. You know, one of the things about Plath is she was also a visual artist mm-hmm. and um, a pretty good one too. So, so it. So it's not it's not really a disconnect when you think about it. Um, so you know, she uh, from a very young age she just loved clothes, like a lot like a lot of us. I think that maybe she appreciated them even more because she couldn't just go out and buy whatever she wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, her she although the year before in a, in a month coming leading up to the Mademoiselle internship, she spent so much money on clothes. Um, and it wasn't all about the Mademoiselle thing. I think that it was kind of a, a tough year for her, her, her third year at Smith. So she sort of, shopping became something that she did to relax and to kind of perk herself up. But she, um, and she loved makeup too. She loved 
red lipstick. She wore red lipstick for a whole duration of her life. And um, I think it was something that she felt... It, you know, the whole idea of femininity was really important to her. Mm-hmm. And it was something she thought about a lot and what it meant. And in the, in the 50s, and I think even today, there's this idea that you couldn't... I think a very, very sexist idea that you that a woman... But she was going to be intellectual, whether a writer or, or, or anything else. Um, then she sort of had to either give up or um, or at least appear incredibly disinterested in um, clothes and makeup and all of that visual presentation. Right. And I think that that made Sylvia, I know that that made Sylvia angry and resentful because um, you can read it in the journals. You know, she's thinking about it, and she's and she's looking desperately for role models of women who um, are writers, but who don't fit what they would call back then, like the blue stocking mm-hmm. stereotype. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it's um, and uh, you know the only the other one that I can think of is, and this is someone who I think is um, far more glamorous than Sylvia, and, uh, and they were friends with, with the Anne Sexton. Right. Um, and I think that that's, and that's probably one of the reasons why Anne Sexton stands out, you know, those images of her. Um, she was, a, she was actually good for modeling, I think. Yeah, but, I think so. yeah, that's, I think, I think that, um, you know, it was a big theme in my book, and it's one of the reasons why I, I chose to write about this subject and this, this month in her life, because the idea of the feminine and, um, beauty and fashion, those, and, and the, and what that meant within the context of an intellectual writing woman, those were constant themes in Sylvia's life. Mm-hmm. Constant. Um, so I, I wanted to look at all that stuff, and I thought it was interesting. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, you've also got, you, as we mentioned, you did many interviews with the other interns. What were their memories of Plath? They were really varied. Mm-hmm. Really varied. Um Some of them remember her as, they all remember her as uh, very, very pretty, very smiley, always smiling, with um, really, really bright, straight white teeth. Kind of um, kind of like the classic, like an American <laughs> smile with the white teeth. Um, and they all remember her red lipstick. And they all remember her very, very shiny hair. And she kind of had, at least at that time, she kind of had shampoo model hair. Or um, at the time, the shampoo was either Halo or Brat. And they had the girls, a lot of times, most of the shampoo models were blonde. And they had, um, you know, the little peach boy haircut. And so Sylvia had, had that look. And, you know, she had, she definitely had solidified that look at that point. So they all remember um, her physical detail. And um, in terms of her personality, that's where... I got really different perspectives mm-hmm. and um, some remember being a little bit a little bit up and down um, not not moody but a lot of them remember her just being really tired at, mm-hmm. uh, at the office and sort of exhausted towards the end which really makes sense when you think about how much work she was doing and the fact that Sylvia was someone who she, she wasn't the type of person who would say, okay, well, I've 
had a really long day at work and actually going to not stay out till five in the morning. She's going to stay out till five in the morning too because she doesn't want to miss out. You know, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I found very endearing about her. Um, so she was pretty worn out by the end, and the, and the other editors noticed that. Um, I think that uh, they all noticed that she had. Even even if she was tired, she had that energy and she wanted to go out a lot and was always asking people, well, you know, let's go to this place or that place. Um, and they remember her as being pretty social. But some of the memories are a little unusual. Um, and my, for, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of one. Oh, yeah. There was um, some... Some people made some observ- noticed some of the observations that she made, and they could tell that she was um, constantly sort of um, a little bit judgmental, mm-hmm. I think, and maybe a little bit snobby about going to being from the East Coast and going to Smith and things like that. I think that she sort of saw herself as a little bit set above some of the other women. Um, and then Neva remembers in very vivid detail Sylvia's re- Sylvia's behavior on the, the morning that the Rosenbergs were to be executed. Um, and Sylvia was very, very upset about that and sort of, you know, shaking and, and very upset at breakfast and then wandered into the subway by herself and she sort of broke out into this um, rash and it was a very, very intense kind of unforgettable moment. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What, what, well, you've mentioned her social life. What was her social life like during this month in New York? It was really busy. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a lot of a lot of the stuff was taken up with scheduled Mademoiselle events, like for example, um, the dance at the St. Regis Ball. They that was sort of the highlight, the high point of the the social calendar for them, and. Um, so there was that, and, uh, and there were a few things that they kind of did on their own. Um, the night that Jane Carroll stayed up all night at the Chelsea Hotel waiting for Dylan Thomas to come out of his room, and they never saw him. So that was fun, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, then they, they, they just did the stuff, I think, that, that you know, 20-year-olds would do today. They met a met random guys on the street and went to, you know, a bar in the village with them and stayed mm-hmm. up dancing. Also, Sylvia had some, she had, she knew some people in New York, so she had already set up a few dates on her own, and so she did go out on a few dates. Um, most of, she really liked the village, and she was hanging out there and um, different bistros and stuff like that, drinking wine. They went to jazz clubs, things like that. It was, it was pretty full. Yeah. It was a pretty full, full calendar. So you have an anecdote in the book about how Mademoiselle ran the intern's handwriting through analysis. What did the analysis of Platt's handwriting reveal? Let me take a look. I want to make sure I get this right. I thought this was really interesting. Yeah, it really was. Because it was from when she submitted, right? It was the original application. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was really crazy because they didn't really... They, when, when, they, when you looked at the, the instructions that the Mademoiselle staff was giving to those girls who wanted to apply... Um, it was kind of sneaky how they managed to get the, the handwriting sample. It was, I mean, they didn't just come out and ask for it. Which, mm-hmm. And and I thought, well, you know, they, I'm, I mean, if it were me, I would have just given it to them. But so I thought that was kind of neat. Um, oh gosh, let's see. If if you've ever seen um, 
a copy of Sylvia Plath's handwriting. I really like it. It's very mm-hmm. round and it's it's very feminine, but there's something very simple about it. Um, you know, I'm having so much time saying it, but anyway, I, I remember a lot of it. It, it said that um, she was. Oh gosh, I want to find the real, the actual thing. She was. They, the, the person picked up on very perfectionist overtones, and um, it said that she was. It, it looked like they, that she was sort of identified more from the handwriting expert as a visual artist than a writer, which is interesting considering the fact that the editors kind of ignored that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and the handwriting expert also apparently wrote to Betsy Tella Blackwell, the Mandelville editor, saying that someone, one of one of her girls was going to, was headed towards the nervous breakdown, and that, in fact, was Sylvia, um, which was really kind of, I mean, that, that just sort of gave me the chills in a way. Yeah. Um, that he could tell just from this. And, this. and the sample was very, very small. It was really small. In the magazine, um, they had a, and they, they would do this for every college issue, they would have, you know, a little picture of, of the guest editor and a teeny tiny little bio, you know, just a line or two. And then the, a copy of the, the signature. And then they would, um, they would give a little fragments of the handwriting analysis but only the good part <laughs> so you know not the, not the bad part mm-hmm. so in Sylvia's good part it says you know very artistic and uh, you know very driven and you know a real sense of the visual but it, it doesn't say the other stuff mm-hmm. so this is this is a really broad question but um, what do you th- what was the significance of this period, this month in New York? What was the significance of it in her life overall? Do you think to her, what did it mean to her? Well, I think for, for one, I think that um, I think that when you're 20 years old, like I am, um, for better or worse, and I think that in a way it's kind of sad that it doesn't quite work like this when you get older, but. But a month or like a period or even a week or, or a, a set period of time can just be so I remember times like this in my life when I was like about ten years ago where it, it's just like you see it in technicolor and mm-hmm. and you just feel like a different person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like you feel yeah, like you're a different person. Or like it's like a um or like you're in your own movie or like it's or like it's a separate life apart from your regular life mm-hmm. almost. And that you've already lived one full lifetime in some like one week or five week period, and I and I had the sense that this was kind of life out for her. And the more I, the more I researched it, the more I realized that it really was. And um, so, you know, I think I think it's really hard to look back and to say this is well, she this because of this experience, this is why this happened or this is why that happened. So it wasn't really about that for me. It was more about. An interesting thing to me was I think that this month had a, what I really know that it did was it helped her, it was really instrumental in her forming her own idea of herself and how she saw herself, which I think is probably um, the biggest thing. And I think that, um, I think that for one, she realized after this month that she didn't really want to work in 
editing or publishing or anything like that. That she really was, you know, an artist and just like a someone who needed to have like free reign of her own creative mind. And um, she seemed to leave the month being very confident that you know she's 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 a writer, not you know magazine editor. So in in terms of concrete stuff, there was that. And I also think that it gave her, you know, she left she left New York feeling very exhausted, very broken. But when you when you look at at, at the aftermath, I think that it gave her a lot of confidence, mm-hmm. and I think that it helped her sort of be, you know, and it, it's only 1953, and I think that it sort of helped her see herself as more of a modern woman, and a lot more bold, and not just kind of like a you know, as she would put it, like a like a schoolgirl in Bobby Fox, like waiting for a guy to pick her up for a date. She became a lot, a lot more sort of on surface glamorous. You know, with very very blonde hair and um, you know, sort of bold, more bold kind of clothes. And you know, after after this month, she had a very very uh, progressive attitude towards dating and men, mm-hmm. extremely progressive for the time. She no longer became remotely concerned about, you know, reputation or this or that or being considered good and all this stuff. And and for that time, for 1953, for a girl's her background, that was pretty impressive, I think. Yeah. Um, she sort of took control of her own life. And so in a way, I think that, that it did have a big impact. Mm-hmm. And she would have gotten exposure to women like that in a place like New York City. Mm-hmm. I feel like we'd be remiss not to mention that the breakdown did come after this, but this was not necessarily, there's a connection, but it's not necessarily that she spent this month and immediately had a breakdown because of the month, correct? Is that how you see oh, it? Oh, right. Yeah. Right. I, I, I really don't think it's that simple. You know, certainly right. that sort of thing can happen if um, someone has a really traumatic experience right. or or something like that, but, but that wasn't the case here. I, I don't think that thing happened, you know, a month. Can cause on its own can cause a breakdown. It's the worst things that happen, or a little bit of disappointment, and you're working too hard. Right. You know, um, it was it was obviously other things, and I think that a lot of it had to do with just feeling very very torn and trapped, as and, and resentful that she had so such less freedom than than a man would. Right. And um, she was angry. She she was very very angry, especially around the time that she was nineteen or twenty and twenty one. She was angry that she didn't have that she had to choose between this or that, and and men didn't have to. And I think that um, I think that had a lot to do with it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for us for talking to us today. Um, any idea who you're going to be writing about next? Yeah, I do, but I'm sort of afraid to say. <laughs> but I can say that. Um, it's a very, very similar time period, and it's someone that everybody knows. So, and, it's a, and it's a woman, because I don't think I ever write about a man. <laughs> <laughs> I've, th- I've had that thought, too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a woman. Okay. Um, yeah, but it's very it's very new, and I'm still just kind of in the period of being stages. Understandable. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I've been talking today with Elizabeth Winder about Pain Party's work, Sylvia Plath, New York, the summer of 1953. I'm Olai Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.